Hello, I'm Jonathan Mast, and welcome to this edition of the Sedgwick Podcast. Today, we're talking about getting back to basics for accommodations. I have three great subject matter experts who are all part of our workforce assets group, and that would include Sarah Elder, Senior Vice President, Adam Rell, Assistant Vice President, and Bridget Caswell, Director of Product Compliance and Statutory Administration. So thank you, three amazing subject matter people, for being with me today. How is everyone? Doing well, thanks. We're doing well, thank you. Great. Fantastic. Well, Bridget, let's let's start with you and, and look at the kind of the big umbrella picture here. Uh, you know, as we kick off the conversation, uh, tell us, you know, in a broader perspective, what about leave administration? What What should our listeners know? Yeah, you know, paid family medical leave landscape, it's becoming much more complex. So employers are looking more to streamline their policies. Uh, and one of the ways they can do that is using a TPA, a third-party administrator, uh, to assist with one place for those employees to report their leaves. They still might have to go to the state if they have that state plan, but at least everything else is in one place. There's also some talk in the industry of trying to make benefits the most generous to apply to every statutory state. So in that way, you take the, the best of all these uh, state benefits and make a one plan to cover them all. But as more statutory states are added, this is becoming way more complex. Uh, another thought is maybe it looks to group some states together, like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. There can be some commonalities there. Uh, another example, Washington, California, Oregon. You know, see if those benefits can be brought up to match each other because it's just becoming more and more complex. Yeah, it sounds, sounds like there's a lot to get to get our arms around. So as we move over and talk to or about accommodations specifically, Sarah, uh, when we think about accommodations, what, what are low to no cost options that are available? And then what about those that require an investment of time versus uh, money? And then, you know, finally, I know there's some other things that go into it, flexibility, job training. So a couple of questions there, but if you can, can give us some insight on that. Sure. So I, I think first and foremost, it's worth mentioning that um, – in connection with a law review article, someone once did research on instances where costs became a legitimate defense, you know, an undue hardship defense in cases. And first and foremost, it doesn't come up very much. Um, but what, what they ultimately determined is that cost is often not something that uh, is going to succeed because um, the EEOC um, and uh, state agencies are going to look at a company in its totality and not really buy the argument that uh, getting an assistive device or a particular uh, ergonomic setup that might cause 
um, a certain amount of money uh, presents undue hardship, even if it does present undue hardship for that particular manager's budget, and they might be inclined then to say that presents undue hardship. So I think one takeaway is first and foremost, it's, it's important to, um, even when it is something that does have a value, you have to get a chair, you have to get a certain kind of desk, um, to not rely on the cost element to say no. Um, and uh, where, where you can say no is if uh, the employee wants the Cadillac version and the Ford version would do just fine. Um, the Ford version is, is perfectly acceptable. And if they want the Cadillac version, they can uh, front the cost to get that, that, uh, that, that difference or to pay that difference. But um, so one thing to remember is, uh, you know, cost should not necessarily be a crutch to say no to an accommodation. And then to your point about considering other accommodations that don't have something quantifiable attached to them, those, those kinds of accommodations include, like, offering schedule flexibility. That is often one that is hard for managers to stomach um, because, uh, they like predictability, and in many instances, uh, reasonable and, and uh, reliable and predictable attendance is an essential function of the job. You can imagine if you're on a manufacturer in a manufacturing setting, and you have to be on that that assembly line or what have you, and that makes perfect sense. But where there are opportunities to look at are situations where that flexibility could extend to additional time um, on uh, for break periods or something that might enable someone to um, to continue working if it could be temperature related changing the temperature in the area so that they don't become overheated um, so um, you know, the typical ones that include um, consideration of no cost rely uh, on flexibility for scheduling and being open to that because there are certain, particularly among the salaried population, um, jobs where flexibility is, um, is, is, makes sense. They can do certain things at night. They're not, they don't need to be on the phone to answer a call for a customer at a certain period of time. Um, other examples include uh, mentioned breaks. Um, other uh, low-cost accommodations could um, include um, changing the, the monitors, changing the lighting, um, putting, if you can't change the lighting, putting a filter over a particular light that might help for someone who is suffering from migraines. Um, and then oftentimes it could be just allowing permission for them to bring something in that they know works for them. Um, it could be a, a, a fan where maybe fans are typically allowed at the desk. Um, and uh, one that uh, clients don't always like to hear about, but an emotional support animal um, where there is there are some assurances that that uh, animal can conform to the appropriate behaviors in the workplace and not uh, serve as a distraction. Um, 
so th- those, you know, are, are some examples that, that often emerge. And, um, and then in the cognitive area um, or in the job aid area, it could be having someone read something out verbally or just changing the size of the font on something um, where that might help someone that's visually impaired or providing a little bit more training or training in a different format that's going to help someone that has a disability that translates to learning, gra- uh, grasp the information in a, in a more effective way. Um, I hope that answered your question. And, and Adam, if you have any additional uh, thoughts, uh, feel free to, to chime in. You know, the one thing, um, I, I agree with everything you said, Sarah, and, and I think that a word to the wise about using cost as your reasoning for not granting an accommodation, if you do that, you open up your books, your balance sheet, because you're then going to have to show, well, this is going to unduly burden our organism. Oh, really? Well, let's take a look at your resources and see if that is a reasonable conclusion. And I don't think any employer really wants to do that. So not only should it not be used as a crutch, I think from a, uh, a business approach perspective and, and a, um, a, a reputational perspective as well, you don't want to subject yourself to that kind of uh, scrutiny and request for uh, subpoena of information, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. but I do, I do agree with, yeah, everything else that you mentioned. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that doesn't cost, you know, a, a lot of money. And I think that just by having the conversation with the employee, um, you probably will, 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 will get uh, insight about what it is they want, and the vast majority of the time, it's probably not going to be expensive. Go along with, with what you were just discussing. Uh, how do these options impact recovery and inclusion and employee engagement? Obviously, this is uh, tremendously important to employers as well as to the importance to the, the injured worker. Yeah, you know, Jonathan, you started off the discussion today by saying that we are getting back to basics. And when I think about the basics of disability laws, the Americans with Disabilities Act, state or local law, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, the basics of those acts and those laws rest on the premise that we want to do what we can to keep employees at work or to help them return to work as soon as possible. So you mentioned several things. You mentioned recovery. You mentioned inclusion. You mentioned engagement. And I think that when done properly, Programs like this uh, and adherence to uh, the law can really contribute to all those things. Uh, let's, let's talk first about engagement. 
when an employee is at work, that leads to improved morale. But not, not just for the employee themselves, but for everyone around them. And the, the morale of coworkers, not, not the injured, worker, not the, the person who has a health condition, but their co-workers. The morale of those folks is something we don't often think about, but if someone is absent from work, other people are going to have to assume those duties, and people get tired of doing other people's work. Some people don't even want to do their own work, right? So you've got somebody doing someone else's work, their morale is going to take a hit. Whereas if that employee stays at work, the coworkers, it's going to improve their morale. Now let's talk about the specific employee in question, right? Um, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I can tell you this. Studies have shown over and over again that employees heal faster when they're at work compared to when they're just sitting at home. It means they recover more quickly. And I, I think this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, an employee is able to feel like they're still a part of something. And this is especially important if someone's job is a part of their identity. So you've got an employee who's who's going to to heal quicker. And then um, with regard to engagement and, and retention even for that matter, uh, I, I still think about something that I heard at a at a webinar, uh, the Disability Management Employer Coalition, DMEC, they they did a a presentation in twenty twenty one that quoted uh, a survey that said that 60%, that 60% of employees say that if they had access to a good return to work or stay at work program, it would increase their loyalty to their employer. And even though that data uh, is a year or two old, I think it's still applies. And when you've got the tightest labor market in decades, that engagement and retention is, is really important. And which kind of leads me in another direction that you didn't ask about, which is about how it benefits the employer. So let's, let's talk about that. When an employer is doing what they can, to keep employees at work or return employees to work as soon as possible, there's going to be some cost reduction there. I mean, when an employee is working rather than just being on leave, you've got hard dollar costs that you're saving in the STD payments, the short-term disability payments that you're not making because the employees at work. And the time out of the office is reduced. And another way that you're saving money, maybe a little harder to quantify as an employer, is you've got the employee at work, so you don't have to spend the time, the money, the energy, the resources in 
recruiting new employees or, or, or retraining current employees, right? The costs of hiring, onboarding, etc. I tell you something, when you have that employee still working, it benefits the employee. So, I mean, if you think about it, at the end of the day, if you've got an employee who is continuing working, ideally still a full-time schedule, but even, even part-time, there's so many people that benefit. The employee benefits. The employee's family benefits. The coworkers benefit. The company benefits. Overall, it just makes a lot of sense, and you are getting dividends paid off. If you're doing it the right way, you've got dividends being paid off in recovery, in inclusion, and in engagement and morale. Well, that sounds that sounds great. What about when managers are supporting an injured or disabled employee? Uh, where does training and the use of uh, the interactive dialogue come into play? I think that especially that key point about the dialogue is something that listeners may not be as familiar with. Well, you know, you mentioned we're getting back to basics, right? Simply put, the interactive dialogue is the backbone of accommodation. So I, 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 I want to. I want to talk about this with some detail. You know, many, I call it the interactive dialogue. Many call this the interactive process. But the reason I prefer the term dialogue is because it is a conversation. It's, uh, a, it's a collaboration between the employee and the employer to figure out, you know, what is the optimum way to keep that employee at work or return them safely. And, you know, like Jonathan, any good conversation, an employer should ask questions and they should listen. And oftentimes, especially if this is done correctly, this will lead to more questions. So let me, uh, let me just give you some of the questions that an employer should seek answers to during an interactive process. Well, first of all, I mean, you want to you wanna ascertain, you know, does the employee have a disability that the ADA uh, requires uh, coverage for? Or with the case of the Pregnant Workers, you know, Fairness Act, you know, the employee will, you know, indicate that, you know, that they're pregnant. And it is important to note that with the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, Pregnancy and pregnancy-related conditions are covered and require accommodation, even when they don't rise to the level of a disability, which is what the ADA requires. So when we're talking the ADA, you're talking about the interactive dialogue. Are there limitations that result from the medical condition? And if so, what are those limitations? And then another thing, so if you've established that there's a medical condition and you've established that that medical condition has led to limitations, one thing you'll need to keep in mind when you interactively dialogue is what are the essential as opposed to non-essential functions of the employee's job? Think about, for example, let's say you have an employee whose job it is to sit 
at, at a front desk in a lobby of, of, a, of an office. And this employee's job is to greet clients. And this employee's job is to answer the phone. And this employee's job is to, is to manage some of the vendors. And this employee's job is to maintain calendars. Well, this employee comes to you and says, I have a lifting restriction. For the next two weeks, I can't lift more than 50 pounds. Most likely, that's not going to be an essential function of that role. So you need to think about, is the limitation affecting an essential uh, job function? And then, if it is, is there a reasonable accommodation that the employer can provide which will allow the employee to do the essential functions of the job? And if so, what is that accommodation? So these are, these are, these are some of the questions that an employer will want to get answers to when they interactively dialogue. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just some of the things that, uh, you know, that you'll, you'll, you'll want to think about. And I know that there are some folks that really think in terms of a dollars and cents perspective, right? They, they understand that doing the right thing is a good thing, but they, they want to know, well, how is this going to have a positive impact uh, from a pocketbook perspective? So what I want to do is, if I may, I want to go back to the beginnings of the ADA. Did you know, Jonathan, interactive process isn't even mentioned in the law of the ADA? The courts invented it as a way to guide employers through the interactive process. Now, the ADA was enacted in 1990, but in 2008, the ADA was amended, and the EEOC, in a guidance, included the term interactive process in the amendment. So here's the dollars and cents part of the discussion. If you look at where things stood in 2008, right before the amendments were enacted, disability discrimination was cited in 2008, in just over 20% of the EEO filings, 20% in 2008. And at the time, this placed it as the fourth most common allegation of, discrimi of employment discrimination behind race, sex, and age. That was in 2008. Fast forward 11 years to 2019. In 2019, for the first time in the history of the ADA, disability became the most often cited basis of discrimination over all the other ones I mentioned. In 11 years, that change took place. Disability charges rose from 20% of the EOC charges in 2008 to 33% of all charges in 11 short years. Now, I know I've given you a lot of percentages, but to put it in context, that's a 61% uptick in the frequency of allegations of disability discrimination. Now, this hockey stick, I use the term hockey stick. I'm not an economics person, but I think a hockey stick-like rise is when you have, you know, a chart showing something and something precipitously 
increases, you know, like like a, a hockey stick. This hockey stick rise in charges took place immediately after the law focused the change to underscore the importance of the interactive dialogue in 2008. Coincidence? I think not. Now, Jonathan, you also asked about training. Here's a phenomenon that we see every day. It's the, hey, you're good at your job. Or, or maybe it's a situation of, hey, you've been here a while. Congratulations. You're now a people leader. This happens all the time. And here's the thing. Just because someone has demonstrated, you know, technical expertise within their role, it does not mean that they have the skills to manage people. So I'm a big believer in training to help develop these skills. I mean, when someone becomes a people leader, they should immediately receive training in the interactive dialogue. And actually other things, quite frankly, just off the top of my head, they should receive training in leave law, uh, employment law in general, harassment prevention, interviewing and selection, diversity, equity, and inclusion, just, just to name a few. See, these things don't come necessarily, they don't come naturally to folks. So training provides the tools that people leaders need to succeed. Well, Adam, to answer your question, no, I didn't know that. So <laughs> thank you for sharing. <laughs> uh, I, I would have missed that on the, on the Jeopardy board, so I appreciate it. And let's, uh, let's jump back over to Sarah here and, and talk about, uh, as industry leaders predict and share our working age population, has a 50% likelihood of becoming disabled for at least a few months of their career. That's 50% of us. As the needs of our global workforce continue to change, Sarah, how can employers keep employees healthy and productive? Um, what can we do? That's a great question. Um, I think the BLA in 2021 uh, had statistics that about one in four uh, American workers um, was uh, 55 or older, and it's anticipated that uh, through 2030 that we're going to see a decline in participation rates for workers um, in, that are younger and continue to see that, that increase in, in older workers. Um, so it does become important to look at this issue from several different lenses. Uh, one, from a legal lens, we, we want to make sure everyone um, understands that aging in and of itself is not an impairment or a, a disability and that you really need to look at it through the manifestations of, uh, of growing old. And by addressing many of the conditions that correlate to getting older, you're probably going to um, solve for some other issues that uh, come about in the ordinary course regardless of age. Um, so um, that's, that's one one important call out because uh, we want to ensure there's not unconscious bias um, against those who are 
getting older and assumptions being made that that's going to translate to the need for more accommodations or inabilities to perform essential job functions um, because certainly companies don't want unconscious bias to, to translate into discriminatory action. So I, I, that is just an important call out um, and, and you want to be careful of uh, treating um, older workers uh, from a perspective that could lead to it a regarded as claim. Someone might look older or what have you, but um, they don't have any any uh, physical or cognitive impairment. Um, but we want to avoid that something that they might need in the workplace um, leads to regarding them as disabled and to illegal conduct as a result of that. Uh, but with all of this being said, as is, is you indicated and as those stats that I cited um, indicate as well, um, we do have an aging workforce, um, and there is a need um, to get work done by leveraging workers of all ages. So it is important to consider what types of actions will help with um, um, addressing um, addressing the needs of that aging workforce. So first, uh, from a proactive standpoint, it is important for employers to examine their wellness benefits um, and to see that potential opportunities to, um, to ensure that those kinds of um, impairments that correlate to aging are, are, are taken into account. And this becomes more difficult as we have uh, more of a remote environment. Um, one, you may not be able to, to see or observe if there's a cognitive decline for someone who's working at home or what have you. So it does become important to look at wellness programs from the standpoint of creativity. Um, and managers can do the same. What are we doing to perhaps in, inspire more physical activity? Are we encouraging breaks? Are we encouraging movement? Do we have programs within our company that um, um, provide resources when uh, someone might need to uh, talk to someone about um, certain conditions, certain crises, et cetera. So it's a time to really look at what you're offering from an EAP uh, perspective and a wellness program perspective to make sure that it is in tune with the trends that you see with an aging workforce, uh, you know, maybe those types of things that they're coming to terms with, if they're no longer able to drive, if they're, if they're becoming empty nesters, and that's going to lead to to certain um, types of, um, uh, of of changes in, in their their mental health, um, but, and so this can be anything from de developing support groups to looking at the, uh, your employee resource groups, where there could be some internal support that might lend itself to addressing those kinds of of concerns and issues. And then there, it becomes very important, um, secondly, to really know your jobs and get in front of the kinds of things that should be considered for an aging population. And as I mentioned before, really almost uh, those of any age, but become more aware of things like, is the flooring, is the flooring that we have 
comfortable and conducive to those who need to stand for a long time and those who, by because of, of, of aging, might be more likely to have uh, physical issues or, or um, uh, mobility impairments. Uh, know your jobs in terms of what um, software resources are available in terms of offering things like the ability to um, change font size, expand the screen size, give amplifiers that might be able to be used um, for uh, to enhance um, the the audio um, in telephone calls. Know when you have certain um, roles uh, that might require um, certain kinds of shoes. Are you are you offering the right kinds of orthotics and that might um, be more conducive um, to the you know, physical challenge that are more consistent with aging? What about the lighting that might uh, improve uh, visibility? Um, and then what about the tools that you're using? Um, have you provided um, checklists that can be used to sort of minimize um, the, some of the critical thinking that might have to apply uh, where uh, things are more amenable to, um, to being able to really administer a task rather than have to use more, more cognitive reasoning to ad administer the, the, the task. And then does your training include things like captions? Are you considering your equipment needs for lifting equipment, motorized carts, those uh, stair climbing um, hand trucks? Um, and are you amenable to brakes where, where um, they might uh, help where more, more resting is needed? So it's getting um, in front of what the job demands are and how those line up with the kinds of trends that you see uh, with an aging workforce and getting in front of those to make modifications up front where you can and then being prepared, as Adam mentioned, to train uh, managers on how to think outside the box in terms of what to do. And I might add that the training is not only important for the, the managers, the training um, uh, and uh, the development of some acumen about self-help in the area of disabilities and being able to make accommodations is important for the employees themselves, making them aware of, of communicating, uh, the need to communicate their needs um, and the need to, to cooperate when efforts are being made to come to some sort of, of an adjustment because very often, particularly in a day and age where clients uh, or uh, employers are using third-party administrators or uh, where we have remote work and some things might need to be done telephonically, a lot of folks are picking up their phones so that, that the, the interactive dialogue becomes um, difficult to perfect, um, and it, a lot of it's done through writing. But if you, through training, include awareness on all parties, old, young, in between, um, it, it leads to good conversation about what 
could enable an employee to continue working. And it's certainly no different for an aging employee, but, you know, one example might be to get a culture where that employee feels comfortable saying, you know, I'm becoming more hard of hearing. It might help. Can we explore some uh something that could amplify the voice of the, the callers that are coming in and creating that comfort level where they can have that dialogue and they have the awareness um, to know that they, they can initiate that dialogue as necessary if something's not, not observable. So I'll kind of pause there, Jonathan, make sure that, I, you know, I hit on, on um, the, the, uh, the big things that you wanted to cover um, with, with that question. No, you gave uh, a lot of great points, and that kind of brings us, as we begin to close out, just bring the whole group back <clears throat> and give everyone uh, an opportunity uh, to talk about any trends that you're keeping an eye on when it comes to stay at work and return to work programs, uh, something to leave people to think about that you guys are immersed in this. So I'll just open it up to uh, all three of you. Can I Can I drop a statistic? Jonathan, I know I dropped a lot of statistics before, but I got I got one that's pretty compelling. So you you just drop all the statistics you want. Okay. Sixty six percent of employees. We're gonna round up and call it sixty six and two thirds to make it an equal two thirds of a hundred percent. Sixty six percent of employees think that their employer should support their mental health needs. Some context here. My dad worked for the same company for 42 years, from 1968 to 2010. Jonathan, never once did I hear him talk about his company's obligation to aid in his mental health. And, you know, now that I think about it, he never even mentioned health benefits at all, with the exception of in 1982 when I had my appendectomy. That was really the only time he even mentioned health insurance. So, you know, what a, what a difference a generation makes. And when you've got two-thirds of employees believing that their employer has an obligation to aid in their mental health, I think that one thing employers really need to think about, you know, Sarah talked about breaks, breaks in the physical, you know, if there's a physical impairment, if that person needs to rest, if that person needs to recuperate, one of the trends that we are seeing is additional breaks for mental health situations. My, my favorite uh, data guy here at Sedgwick, Andy Berg, uh, mentioned that at the onset of the pandemic that anxiety really spiked. And I think that with the increase in A, the awareness of the importance of mental health, B, some of the, we're chipping away at the stigma of, 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 of talking about it. There's still some there, but I think it's easier now. I think one thing employers need to think about is extended breaks or additional breaks 
for the mental health, for the cognitive impairment. And so I, the example that I, that I, that comes to mind is, presume you have somebody with, you know, documented anxiety and this person, this person works in, in a call center, right? A call center environment and they're talking to people and they're talking to customers all day. And look, I know how I am when I think I haven't gotten good customer service. And although uh, I do try to be polite and kind in my, in my daily life, sometimes my patience is tested on those customer service phone calls. And so uh, what I could see is this employee who has the, the, the anxiety flare up when they deal with an unusually irate caller, consider providing that employee what we call a just-in-time accommodation. So the employee has a flare-up of anxiety. Even if the employee has, a medi has medical documentation that says, hey, in these situations, the employee, you know, should, should you know, have off work the rest of the day. Well, you know what? Maybe asking the employee what they need in those situations might yield a result that's better for everybody. Maybe the employee doesn't need to take off the rest of the day. Maybe the employee just needs 15 minutes or 20 minutes in a quiet room to recover and get themselves, you know, back up to uh, where they feel like they can go back to their job. And that makes so much sense from a business perspective because the employee can let a coworker or a supervisor know, hey, you know what, I'm going to head off for 15 minutes, 20 minutes or whatever. And then the phone is covered while they're gone and the employee then comes back when they're ready. I mean, if the employee gets in their car and drives home, they're probably not coming back. So in a situation where an employer is providing those additional breaks or those extended breaks, it could end up being less disruptive to the workplace as well as providing all those benefits we talked about before if the employee stays on the job rather than going home. So long story short, although it's too late, extended breaks and additional breaks for just-in-time accommodations for the cognitive impairment, I think is a trend that uh, we're seeing and, and hopefully will become more common. Tara, Jonathan, one, yeah, one thing I might want to add is in the context of um, indefinite leave and uh, accommodations, leave accommodations that might indicate indefiniteness or um, the serial extension situation that might uh, indicate indefiniteness. And this is an area that gives employers a lot of comfort because in general, with the you know, exception of some, you know, perhaps uh, city human rights laws like New York City, for example, in, in general, it's, there's agreement in the courts and in the agencies that indefinite leave is not a, a reasonable accommodation. And so um, oftentimes uh, we see clients that are really anxious to get something characterized as an indefinite leave with a thought perhaps that that might get them off the hook for um, 
making accommodations. And um, I think it becomes really important first and foremost to ensure that the, the paperwork that's being provided, the healthcare provider, and the, and the conversations that are occurring with the employee, um, that's the issue of returning to work in some capacity first and foremost, and that that is documented before characterizing something as an indefinite leave. Um, because maybe the paperwork is, is, is written in a manner that uh, might unwittingly invite a healthcare provider to put a long date out there or not really think outside of the box of how to keep that employee at work or return them to work with accommodations. And so it becomes too too easy to rely on a lengthy date or the need for follow-up appointments to characterize it as indefinite. So that, you know, that that's issue number one is something that I that I often see. And then I think number two is to remember that even when um, a leave could be going beyond a point that's reasonable or could be characterized as indefinite. That indefiniteness doesn't mean that that employee is not capable of performing some work that might be um, available within the corporation. And I often see this happening where employers forget about reassignment as an accommodation. And that becomes from a, from a compliance standpoint, from an employee relations standpoint, and really from a smart business standpoint, because you've invested in these employees. And so um, it, it becomes um, more economical, if you just want to look at it from that as, a, as opposed to a relationship standpoint, to keep them in some capacity. So to, uh, it's important to look for the job that they might be able to perform. And, and I would recommend that employees get in front of that and have a job bank of sorts, um, some jobs at the ready that often can be performed if someone in a workers' comp situation has, has met maximum medical improvement and can't do certain physical requirements or in other, you know, other roles, but they could do something, I think, in the retail situation, be a store greeter, which doesn't require much physical activity. Have those alternatives at the ready because, you know, at, 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 the, at the worst, the employee might say, I don't want that position, but you've set yourself up well from a compliance standpoint and certainly from a, a, a employee, employee culture and company culture standpoint of saying we care about you and uh, we, we want to focus on, on retaining, uh, retaining in you. And from, a, from an economic standpoint, it, it works for, from, uh, as, as a way to protect the investment that you've made. So I think if I had to add anything, I just would, would again, caution against um, trying to rely too heavily on that characterization of something as indefinite and work a little harder to find a way to keep someone employed, even if it is a, a a different uh, position, uh, reassign them to a position that's open. You don't have to create a position, but reassign them to something um, that they, they would be able to do. Yeah, and I can add uh, some of the trends that I'm seeing, you know, are all the new state paid leaves. You know, we've had the failure at the federal level to get that uh, put across. So, you know, the states are doing it themselves. Uh, this year we have Oregon, they are implementing 9323. Uh, there's a possibility they could delay it, but so far they are on 493. Uh, and then Colorado, 1124. 
Uh, not to be outdone, Maryland, Delaware, and Minnesota are all implementing 1126, with Minnesota being the most recent kid on the block. Uh, Maryland delayed their 1125 to 1126 to join the group. Um, and actually, Maine, it looks like they could potentially have their paid family medical leave passed in this legislative session. Uh, the date I saw for that was 5126. <laughs> so there's a lot going on in the leave space that definitely uh, can affect what's going on with accommodations as well if uh, employees in those states have the opportunity to take those state paid leaves. Well, thanks to all three of you, Sarah, Adam, Bridget. I mean, this was uh, such great information. I hope uh, that our listeners will will take it to heart. Uh, you know, it's a great resource to come back to. And of course, uh, people can always find out more by visiting visiting us at sedgwick.com. So thank you all for being with me today. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you.